nations will rise and fall. The world will feel like it's crumbling around us. There will be times where we feel unable to carry on. Our most trusted people will hurt us. But God is still in control. God is still good. God is still providing. God is still faithful. Our God has been, is, and will be the greatest strength in our lives. We can be still because God still is. I am a pastor candidate here at Riverview, helping out um, with a lot of the pastors and at the venues. Um, if you're just joining us this week, we're going through our series on the book of Daniel. I had to remind Pastor Steve this morning, he thought we were in Nehemiah. So um, yeah, we're in Daniel, just to clarify, chapter three. Um, if you are a VeggieTales fan, maybe you know the story of Rack, Shack, and Benny and the Chocolate Bunny Factory. Um, I was kind of reliving a little nostalgia this past week, singing the songs with my, uh, we were on a walk with my wife and baby, and she was like, how do you remember all these? So I'm not going to sing it for you now, but it was a, it was a nice week to just kind of relive some of those uh, glory days um, with the VeggieTales. If you don't know VeggieTales, that's fine too. Um, now before we get into today, uh, it's important to recap the past couple weeks because they give significance to how the chapter starts today, and they help paint the picture for this theme of kingdoms in Daniel that Pastor Noel mentioned at the beginning of the series. So I'm going to try to zoom through these real quick. Okay, so in the first verse of the first chapter, we learn about a couple kings. The first is Jehoiakim, who was king over Judah, which was part of Israel, okay, and he was not a good king. He didn't follow God's commands for his people. The second is Nebuchadnezzar, who was king over Babylon, okay, which is part of a lot of uh, modern-day Western Asia and was the major world power at the time. Now, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar showed up to Jerusalem where the Jews lived and sieged it and transported all of the people, most of the people, back to Babylon as slaves. So Daniel and the three main guys of today's text, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, get selected to serve in the king's palace. And they basically get indoctrinated with uh, new language, new literature, new culture, new names. They get offered the king's food and drink, which was against God's commands for, for what to eat and to drink. And they tactfully avoid breaking God's commands while building relationships with people in the kingdom. So God grants them wisdom because of that and the ability to interpret visions and dreams. And the king sees that and they begin attending him directly. So that gets us to chapter two. All right, so they're in his court and the king has a dream, right? If you remember from last week, if you caught Noel's message, he has a dream and it freaks him out and he wants to know the meaning. Okay, so he calls all of his best people together and no one can tell him the meaning of the dream. So he orders all of the wise men dead, including Daniel and these three guys. Now they get a little bit of time from the king to try to figure this out. And with it, they pray and God grants them the answer. So Daniel comes before the king. If you remember last week, uh, Pastor Noel had the giant cutout of the statue with all the different materials as it went down. Um, And so that was a super helpful visual to kind of have an idea of what this statue looked like. Okay, so the head was made of gold, chest made of silver, thighs made of bronze, legs made of iron, and feet made of iron and clay. And a stone breaks off and strikes the statue on the feet, and the whole thing comes crumbling down and vanishes into the wind. And then the stone becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth. 
All right? So Daniel, when he says he's telling this dream to the king, he tells him that the different parts are kingdoms. So Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold, and the different materials are the kingdoms that are going to come after him. All right? But God will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed and bring all of these kingdoms to an end. So that brings us to chapter 3. Now, Noel mentioned at the beginning of the series, and with chapters like this, that it's easy to see the people in the story and think the point that we're supposed to walk away with is we need to be like these people. But as he also mentioned, there's something bigger going on. The couple truths that earthly kingdoms come and go, but God's character and power remain the same, and every earthly kingdom will one day fade away until all that's left is the kingdom of Jesus. Now, as I was thinking about this message um, and trying to prepare Recently, I was watching a soccer game on TV, and the team that I was rooting for got to the point where it just seemed like there was no way they were coming back. The other team had all the momentum, and so I didn't really feel like dragging the game out, so I just turned it off, okay? I was just like, I got better things to do. I'm going to go do something else. This is, I see where this is going, all right? Well, later on in the day, I came back to check my phone, and the team that I thought there was no chance they were going to win had come back to win the game, Right? Has anybody else ever done that? I was thinking of Michigan State and Baylor in the football game. Uh, it's been a while now. But maybe you've done that with like a TV show or a movie or something like that, right? You come back and find out the ending was different than you initially just completely hopelessly thought, right? So continuing this theme of kingdoms in Daniel, I think the roadmap of today's text shows us a couple of earthly kingdoms that pull our heart to turn off and walk out on God's kingdom, but ultimately his kingdom is worth enduring to finish the story. So we start in Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, where it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, has anyone ever had a conversation with someone and then a follow-up conversation on that and it feels like the only detail that that person's recalling is the one that they wanted to hear? Sometimes my wife and I have that issue. It's, it's on my side, okay? But I do wonder if that's part of what's happening here with the king, right? He heard in chapter two, you are the head of gold and that's all he walked away with. He said, yep, you're right, that's it. You know, that's all we need. Okay? But I also think he's being super intentional here, and this is a huge retort to God's words about the kingdoms that would rise and fall. Remember the chapter 2 statue, right? He was the head of gold, and the different materials were the kingdoms that were going to come after him. I think Nebuchadnezzar is saying here, with this giant statue of gold, that this is the kingdom, and there's nothing after it, and that includes your kingdom, God. And so far in these first two verses, we get a couple major details. We get a lot, right? We know the what, that everybody's showing up here for the dedication of this giant statue by order of the king, right? This is the major world power with all of its most important people showing up in one place to pay homage to this giant statue. And it's super easy to miss with what's going on here, but we know the where, right? He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, personally, sometimes when I read scripture, It's super easy for me to gloss over places because it's hard to pinpoint where these places are sometimes and why it matters. Okay, so why is the where listed in this passage? Well, would you believe it if I said that what's going on here with this giant statue, as grandiose as it seems, had been tried before in the same place? 
What are the odds? So we need to look back in Scripture to help understand this. So in the book of Genesis, after the flood, God, with Noah in the ark, God tells Noah a few things. First, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He says, I've given you everything, all of these plants and animals for your good. And three, people are valuable because they are made in my image. And these are all things that he said to Adam and Eve in the garden in the very beginning. It's super interesting that when God begins both beginnings with his people, he lists these three things as a signal of his mercy and his care for people. So in Genesis 10, we get a list of Noah's descendants, including his great-grandson Nimrod, which was another great name, okay, about whom we're told, his kingdom started with Babylon, Eric, Akkad, and Calneh in the land of Shinar. Now, this is the first record in the Bible of kingdoms, right? And we see Babylon in the land of Shinar. And fast forward a little bit, we get a glimpse of what this kingdom was like in Genesis 11. And notice the parallels to Daniel as we go through this. So in Genesis 11, we read, the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. Now, the word, the word for uh, land in verse 2 is actually the Hebrew word for plain. So did you catch any of the parallels? Right? We have a plain in the land of Babylon, and scholars differ on whether it's the exact same spot or just somewhere in the general region, with the masses coming together with a giant structure for the purpose of making a name for themselves or glorifying themselves. And this is one kind of earthly kingdom that I think tries to pull, pull us away, and I'm calling it the kingdom of self. So here in Genesis, just like Nebuchadnezzar, these people are not being remotely discreet about what they're doing, right? This tower is a statement. And it got me thinking about the way that Jesus taught us to pray when he said, Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we look at the first earthly kingdom, Their statement is, our tower in heaven, our name be honored, our kingdom come. So the story started with God, and he said, you're valuable, and I'm providing good gifts for you, and I want you to multiply and enjoy them and me. But over time, the kingdom of self leaves the grace of God. It drifts away from the good gifts of God's providence and says, these aren't yours, God, these are mine that I am entitled to. The people here, God gave them language to communicate and resources to live, and they tried to turn around and use those to remove God from his place as the sovereign over their lives. The kingdom of self is also one of independence, and not in the sense that, like, I've moved out of my parents' house and I can pay my own bills now, but that the things that I have, down to the sustaining of my very life, are from God, right? My home, my family, my next breath, And I think looking back on things like this, there's a potential for us to think that this is just sort of like a nonsensical attempt to be significant or remembered, right? We, I don't know if anyone here has ever tried to build a tower into the sky to bring relevance to yourself, right? But I do think we have our own potential versions of this today that can be more subtle or internalized, especially in an age of social media. 
So it was super interesting. I came across a uh, survey recently uh, of young people in the U.S. and U.K. that were interviewed on their career aspirations, and the majority of respondents gave their top choice as a YouTuber. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that being a YouTuber is automatically bad in itself, but I was just trying to think about what other than a YouTuber or maybe a TikToker nowadays gets you instantly in front of as many people as possible. And again, it's not inherently wrong. Think back to Genesis, right? God said, here's this gift, and the kingdom of self takes it for its own recognition. And this can happen in other areas of our life, too. Our careers, our greatest talents, our achievements, our kids' achievements, our open-handed beliefs can all be utilized as an elevation of self and an identity apart from God. And I listed those because each one of those has been personal in my own life. So I'm speaking from personal experience on these ones. And lastly, with this thing in Genesis, verse 5, Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. Now, I wanted to touch on this because I think there's a huge irony with it. That as we build our towers and our monuments to self, that God still comes down from above us to see them. All the way back to the garden with Adam and Eve, when they were untruthfully told that eating the fruit would cause them to become like God, to building a tower into the sky to reach God, to today's attempts to remove God from the throne of our lives and honor ourselves, God still comes down from above us. And trying to bring ourselves recognition is the opposite of how God works. Proverbs 3 says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And it's super interesting. Right after this in Genesis 11 and Genesis 12, we see God pick an unknown guy in Abraham to be the one who receives blessing and honor and promise. So all of this with the kingdom of self, the kingdom of God through the gospel of Jesus speaks directly to it. Right? It says you're valuable because you're created in the image of God. And instead of these impossible attempts to preserve yourself or find meaning in your own effort, Jesus' perfect life on your behalf and death on the cross for your sin truly bring you into the presence of God. It leaves nothing left for you to struggle to grasp onto, to be relevant or significant or gain approval or earn your way to God. I was thinking about when Jesus was hanging on the cross, the book of John records that right before he died, he said, it is finished. The payment for our sin and selfishness was made once and for all, and our standing before God made right forever, and it was God who lifted us up, not ourselves. So that's a prayer that I have for us, that that would humble us and allow us to rest in Jesus' finished perfect work when the kingdom of self tries to pull us away. So as we take all this back to Daniel, as the earthly kingdom of Babylon progresses to this point in history in Daniel, everything that just happened with the origins in Genesis is exactly what's happening with Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. Right? We've talked about the what and the where of the chapter. I think the why for him boils down to pride and insecurity. We saw it in Genesis with the people not wanting to be scattered and seeking their own honor. And now we see that after Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and is told about these kingdoms that are going to come after him, it's the same reaction. He made a giant statue and he told everyone to come pay homage to it, right? Even though Daniel told him straight up in the last chapter, the God of the heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. And the king took that and tried to use every bit of it to elevate himself for as much lasting relevance as he could rather than resting in God. 
So back into Daniel, everybody that's important shows up, and we read, A herald loudly proclaimed, People of every nation and language, you are commanded. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. So obviously that's intense, right? And kind of strange, considering that at the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had just called God, God of gods and Lord of kings. But anyway, as we read people of every nation and language, this was pretty accurate. Considering the size of the Babylonian Empire at the time, it stretched a pretty big distance. And all of these different places and people groups they conquered, you can kind of see how it shapes out there. Um, With Jerusalem all the way on the left, and Babylon all the way on the east, and all of these people that they conquered. Second Kings actually tells us, after they would siege these places and transport people back to Babylon as slaves, they would leave the poorest people behind to basically farm the land for them. Okay? And there's a couple major things with what we just read happening. And I think it displays another kind of earthly kingdom that I'm calling the kingdom of power. Right? Think about how these people got here. Their lands were conquered, And they were taken from their homes and forced to show up to this dedication of this statue by threat of death, right? And maybe that sounds brutal, but honestly, it doesn't fall outside of anything as the history of earthly kingdoms go. The kingdoms that came after this were the same, right? The Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, to the Middle Ages, to colonization, to the 20th century, all of these kingdoms tried to conquer and subjugate and crush rebellion, It was kind of tempting for me even to think that this is just history led by tyrant kings and evil emperors that we've moved on from, but with a war happening today, we see this can still be the case. And just to show that this doesn't only apply to leaders that we would label evil or corrupt, Jesus' disciples were guilty of this. Okay, in Matthew 20, the mother of a couple of Jesus' disciples, James and John, shows up and asks Jesus, Promise that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and the other on your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? We are able, they said to him. He told them, You will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right and my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those whom it's been prepared by my Father. When the ten disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. And Jesus called them over and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as king, this is exactly what Jesus did. He stuck to his words all the way to the end. When he stood before Pilate, who had the authority to put him to death, and he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over, but as it is, my kingdom is not from here. God's kingdom is upside down from the way Babylon or any earthly kingdom since has operated. And passages like this in Matthew are part of why I follow Jesus. Thinking about leaders throughout history, how many left their thrones in humility and poured out their hearts and sacrificed their lives for not only the greatest of their people, 
but the least of their people. The power of earthly kingdoms were solidified by force and violence. We went through a series recently at Riv on Romans where Paul said that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The power of Jesus' eternal kingdom was by dying on a cross in love for his people. Continuing in Daniel, verse 7. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, again, with the identities of these people, they came from all these different regions, right? Cultures, languages, but now they're lumped into one mass of worshipping this giant statue in Babylon. So I was thinking about this. My sister recently went to see Coldplay um, at Soldier Field in Chicago, and uh, I was watching some videos from their time at the concert and looking out at the whole stadium. It was during one of their popular songs. Um, You know, people had the flashlights going and everything like that. Um, As I looked out over the stadium, I couldn't make out the identity of anyone in particular, but everyone in the stadium seemed to know the lyrics of this song and was belting it out, right? They were all on the same page. So I think Nebuchadnezzar was ahead of his time on this one, okay? I think he knew what he was doing with having this music and this crowd, right? Because those things can have an effect on us. I think this was an attempt at unity, albeit a false one. Remember, it was forced by a threat of death. And although this group is made up of a lot of different people, there's no allowance for any diversity here. Who these people are and what they bring to this gathering is secondary to the identity of worshiping this statue in Babylon. But God's kingdom is one of true unity in diversity. And there will be a day and a scene like this where the diverse unity of God's people will come together to respond in love to the king, not fear. I was struck recently, I I found a map of the population of the world's Christians today, and the majority were not in North America. They were in Africa and South America. And it was cool to see that uh, the Christian population in China is rising exponentially, just as a couple of examples. And it was awesome to just sit and think about the amount of different people that we're going to be able to spend eternity with, right? And Revelation 7 shows us this scene. It says, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. So in Revelation, we see the distinct identities of the many that make up the family of one. And because this is true of God's kingdom, we embrace this at Riverview with our mission statement and core values. Right? We invite everyone to know and enjoy Jesus And we desire the full expression of our individual and cultural life experiences woven together by our common salvation. And I was studying the concept of unity in scripture as I was preparing for this, and it was interesting. The concept that comes up a lot is written as having the same mind as one another. And it's an interesting idea. It talks about the areas around your heart and how they moderate you and show themselves in corresponding outward behavior. Now, as I was reading this in Daniel, I was seriously wondering in curiosity about the authenticity of these people and showing up for this dedication, right? Did they really believe what they were doing by showing up and bowing? Or was it just one of these like, all right, well, let's just, you know, show up and do this so that we don't get thrown into a furnace. Like I got stuff to do today, right? So 
I personally don't think that they had the same mind. And I also think that this is a challenge for God's people today. Are we truly of the same mind in Christ to the point that it shows itself in our corresponding outward behavior toward one another? Right, just from what we've covered today, in God's kingdom, do we remember his grace toward us? And does it lead us to humility in ourselves and toward one another? Instead of lording over people, do we become the servant of others? Do we believe in the unity and diversity of God's kingdom and show that in our actions? Now, I know I said at the beginning the potential for the text was to look at the three guys and say the point is be like them, and we haven't really touched on them that much. Okay, but like I mentioned at the beginning too with wanting to uh, turn off the TV when God's story seems to be going south, I want to finish with looking at three, these three guys to see what they faced in changing allegiances and why they stuck with God. So in verse 8, some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you've set up. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I've set up? Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you'll be immediately thrown into a furnace of blazing fire, and who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Now with all of the potentials of these earthly kingdoms to pull these guys away, I think, honestly, they face every single one of these. Just think about choosing what uh, sticking with God was going to cost these guys. They were influential people in Babylon in a high position, so everything that came with that, right, it was probably financially. You can bet that people in Babylon, officials, were well taken care of financially, right? And it could have been tempting in this moment for these guys to think that they were financially secure for the rest of their lives, right? They'd be taken care of even if they just switched allegiances for like this, however long this went, just a couple minutes, right? They could always go back, right? And honestly, I bet that's what other people in the crowd were thinking, right? Let's just, all right, let's just do this, you know, and then we can go back to our thing after it's over. They had the potential to think, well, if God handed us over, right, and Babylon seems to be taking care of us now, why don't we just keep going with the hand that's feeding us? Or, where's God been this entire time, right? He handed us over a long time ago and walked out. What about the social aspect, right? I bet they had friends in this crowd, so what was going to happen to those relationships? Or the social pressures with the music and the crowd? What about the fact that they were in positions of power that they could also help their fellow Jews who were also in captivity, right? What was going to happen to their people if they weren't alive anymore? And finally, not to mention, the fear of the king's anger, pain of the furnace, and threat of death. But look at what they say. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, I love this, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you've set up. 
So they get thrown into the furnace. And while they're in there, we read, then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men, not tied, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. This is crazy. And the next verse tells us that the hairs on their head, nothing was singed. Their clothes were fine. They didn't smell like smoke. Okay? I've had a grilling accident before, so I know what a little bit of missing eyebrow and bangs feels like. Right? And if anyone has sat around a bonfire, you know that you smell at the end of it when you walk away. So this is insane. Again, it's tempting to walk away thinking, be like these guys is the main point. But it goes deeper to a king and a kingdom that are worth sticking it out with until the end. First, we talked about the origins of these earthly kingdoms, that they begin with God, and he said, you're valuable and I'm providing good gifts for you. I want you to use them and walk with me. Second, when God makes promises, he always keeps them. There's a, a pretty popular verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. Some of you might know that one, right? For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper, not to harm, give you hope in a future. Well, that verse was written specifically to these people in the middle of a serious trial, right? God promised them a better end to their story, and he eventually delivered. And the Old Testament is full of promises pointing to the coming of Jesus, and just like God promised, he came. And he died for our sins on the cross to save us. And he promises he's going to come back to bring the entirety of his kingdom to himself. In Revelation 21, it says, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. So these guys knew about God's good gifts and mercy. They knew his commands on how to conduct their lives. They knew his promises and they looked forward to his coming deliverance. And lastly, they believed that his grace was sufficient in the meantime. It's super interesting to know here that God didn't prevent them from being thrown into the fire, but that he was with them in it. They even admitted that they couldn't see the end of God's story, right? They said, even if he doesn't, we don't know how this is going to end. But his kingdom in and over their lives was enough. They were willing to step into the furnace, trusting God with the end of the story. His past goodness and faithfulness his presence with them in that moment and his promises for the future were enough. And I pray that would be for us as we close. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this chapter in Daniel. We need this reminder of who you are. We need this reminder of what your kingdom is like when we struggle to see the end of the story you have for our lives and we're tempted to turn to these earthly kingdoms where the reward might be more immediately visible and self-serving. Lord, I pray that you would help us remember you. Lord, from Genesis to Revelation, help us remember that the beginning of every earthly kingdom starts with you, that it will all end with you, and that you're intimately with us in the furnace. Amen.